A reading from the book of Galatians. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The word of the Lord. Let me just walk up. We're good, right? We've seen the intro a couple times if you've been here. You don't need the music. I mean, I could hum it for you. Um, hey, if you're a guest with us, thanks for being here today. If you're a part of the One Fellowship family, it's great to see you. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to walk through this passage together uh, that you just heard read by Marty in Galatians 3. And as I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about what Paul's been doing throughout this letter to the church, I was thinking about sure things. Um, we love the idea of a sure thing. We look for things that are um, sure, that we can absolutely rely on, and, and we're bought and sold this in many different ways. Um, I was even seeing the other day, this, there's like a new diet called the sure thing diet, and I was like, yeah, right. That means that's absolutely not going to work. Um, we look for this in sports teams, like, oh, that's, they're, they're a sure thing. We look for this uh, if you're younger and you're getting into college, people will tell you, oh, sure thing, right? But as we live, we start to realize that, uh, hmm, what's actually a sure thing? I was even thinking about this in a historical uh, sense this week. Now, uh, on May 31st, 1911, this giant ship with a double bottom hull divided into 16 watertight compartments set sail for New York from England, and the captain yells as they're taking off, God himself could not sink this ship. Now, no spoilers if you haven't seen the movie Titanic or may not know the history, but this doesn't work out so well. A sure thing, right? When it comes to our health, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to other relationships, when it comes to what the future looks like, none of these things are absolutely certain. And some of you know this all too well. 
The more we live life and we see these things happen or, or fall through, the more we start to wonder, is there really any such thing as the sure thing? And it's a fair question. And it's one that the Apostle Paul actually seeks to answer here in this passage. Because it's easy for this line of questioning to pour over into all of our relationships, including our relationship with God or the way that we even view God. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into what I believe is an incredibly encouraging, encouraging passage. Um, I love this passage. I love what it has to say. And so if you need encouragement today, I believe that you can find it here as Paul continues in this letter to the church of Galatia. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray you'd speak to us now in a very tangible and real way. I pray that you'd show us who you are. I pray that you would show us the beauty of the triune God. I pray that you would reveal to us our own hearts and our own questions and our own doubts and our own feelings that can sort of waver from side to side. We feel sometimes like we can be tossed about in the water and we have a hard time finding steady footing. I pray for all of us in here today, no matter what we brought in with us, no matter where you find us today, that you would speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let us dive in here to Galatians 3. We pick up in the middle of the chapter, and here's where it starts. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers. Now, we have to stop right here because what this tells us is this is a part of a larger conversation. From last week, we know this conversation centers around the idea of living by faith, no longer under the Old Testament laws. Now, Paul has pretty much come out swinging as hard as you can, and he does so throughout the entire book, saying, hey, don't run from Jesus, and don't add to Jesus. There's no other Savior, there's no other gospel, there's no other philosophy, there's no other Lord, there's no other charismatic leader, religious idea, prophet, good teacher, miracle worker, lofty prayer, or great humanitarian act that can add to Jesus for salvation. So don't do it. And to bring this home even further, and to bring it down to ground level where we live life, Paul offers this example. He says, to give it a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified or once it's been finalized. Paul essentially has set up court. Just imagine, literally. Think about this like a courtroom. And Paul is in this courtroom, in the church, the people he loves, this church he planted. They're all sitting in the audience. They're all listening, and they're watching as this goes down. He is both the defense attorney and the prosecutor in this case, all for the sake of protecting his church family that he loved, and by proxy, you and me. He is simultaneously defending Jesus in the gospel while also seeking to prosecute to the full extent of the law the false teachers and false belief of Jesus plus continuing to live under the Old Testament law. Why is Paul so passionate about this? Because he knows the danger of these false ideas 
becoming accepted inside of the church. He knows how it will imprison those who have actually already been set free. And so this human example that Paul uses here about a man-made covenant that can't be changed once it's ratified, it comes directly from the Greco-Roman world, and it would be similar to what we see today as a final will and testament. A final will and testament. When you do that, when you have that, nothing can change that. Nothing can annul it. Nothing can negate it or undo it. For instance, if anything happens to me, all that I have goes to my family, goes to Laura, goes to Silas. And that's done. And nothing's changed that. Fully ratified. We get what Paul is saying here. But here's where it gets complicated. And you know this. And I know this. We live in a culture where promises are undone all the time. <laughs> promises are broken. Where people say one thing and they do another. I had my own experience with this this week. Um, we have a storage unit. And... Uh, I just know, I get this, I get this uh, nice little text that says, thank you for paying your monthly bill um, each month from this storage unit. I won't name names on which storage unit this is. I'm not here to bash storage units in Charleston or Mount Pleasant where this one is. Um, but I pay um, $44 a month for this. And all of a sudden on Friday as I'm writing this sermon, I get a text that's like, thank you for paying $88 this month. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Time to take a break from sermon writing and uh, get on a live chat. And so I did. And I talked to this representative. I was like, hey, what's going on here? I signed this contract, you know, to pay this amount. And so we talked for a little while. And then he said, sir, you might want to look down at clause 30. And I was like, oh, clause 30. That's where, I, that's where I forgot to look. And there in the fine type is this clause that they can essentially change the price if they deem so fit. And I was like, all right, that's, so there's a catch, right? But this happens all the time. We have a hard time trusting because promises are broken, people walk away, there's a catch. Things aren't what, they, uh, what we thought they were. And we see this day after day after day in our lives and day after day after day in our relationships. And so it can become hard, these experiences of people going back on their word, breaking promises, not holding up their end, and it has an effect on our ability to do one thing, to trust, to have faith. Paul knows that this questioning of Jesus goes a lot deeper than the law itself. It goes to a much deeper fundamental question of faith. And that's what these false teachers are bringing to the table. Essentially by saying you need to continue to live under the law, here's what they're asking and here's what they want the people to ask. Is God safe? If I break promises, and I change my mind all the time, how do I know God won't change his, so I better do this too, or I better add my part, or I better still do this? To take it a step further, Paul pulls Abraham back into the picture. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul essentially points out something pretty curious. The promise was to Abraham in his descendant, singular. It wasn't to all of Abraham's offering, but to one descendant in particular who is 
Christ. He references essentially Genesis 12 and 22, and here's what these verses say. Genesis 12, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis 12, 7. And then in 22, he says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 22, 18. Ultimately pointing to Jesus. So what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that if you, in here, today, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you confess him as Lord, you are metaphysically fused with Christ. You are made one with him on an invisible level. The phrase in Christ is riddled throughout Paul's letters because it's one of his favorite expressions. We are baptized into Christ. We're buried with him through baptism into his death. We're crucified with him. We are alive to God in Christ. All of this language is expressing that when we trust in Jesus, we are made one with him in an unseen way. The closest thing we can compare this to is a marriage relationship. There's a oneness that happens in marriage that's unseen, it's hidden, but it's very real. What Paul is getting at is that if God made this promise to Abraham and Christ based on faith and trust, the only way the false teachers trying to send you back under some form of works-based righteousness, the only way that they could be right is if God has changed the terms of the agreement. And what Paul is making abundantly clear is that he hasn't. He hasn't. You won't find any room in any chapter or verse of this book that says God has left things open-ended when it comes to the way he sees you, his child. It's not here. But it's a lot easier than we think for other ideas to start to pop into our head. This is a natural consequence of living in a broken world with broken hearts and broken minds. You see, the church here in Galatia, what they started to do was switch up the order, and so doing so, distort the very promise. That's why Paul says, hey, hey, let's stop for a minute. The promise was given 430 years before the law ever came on the scene. A promise based on faith, not works. Not the promise of the law that will offer salvation, but the promise of a Savior that's coming to put all of the mess back together, one so perfect that he'll not only fulfill the law by upholding it perfectly, but he will institute a new law of love that only requires one thing, faith. And the object of this faith makes us family. And so Paul kind of moves on, and he starts to actually get into more of this familial language, and he says, for if the inheritance, family language, comes by the law, then it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. He wants so desperately for us to understand this, so desperately for the church to understand this, that the law couldn't make us family, and it was never intended to. That the law couldn't give us a future. That's not what it was made for. That the law couldn't offer us eternal life. It doesn't hold that kind of power. No. Long before the law was established, there was a beautiful promise, an amazing promise. 
And so Paul asked a really good question here that he knows people would be wondering. Why then the law? I mean, if God gave a promise, then why even have a law? Why even, why even establish these rules in the first place? And Paul answers that. He says it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of our sin. Until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Not an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God instituted this law. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Like, are these in conflict with one another? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This is really important for us to understand. The law is not the enemy. The law is not. We can make it into the enemy. It's not the enemy. Uh, Jesus makes it clear. I didn't come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill it. Paul makes it clear. The law and the promise, hey, they don't contradict each other. The law served as a placeholder. And as we'll see next week, a guardian, a protector for a time. It shows both what God cares about and his character. He cares about life. And so the law offers protections, not just rules. Like if you look at the Old Testament law, it has things on how tall you should build buildings and how you should do certain things. Guess why that's there? Because God wants to protect life. It's for our good. It also shows his character, that his character is love. And the law encouraged honor and love for God from his people, this holy God. Even the law was heart-centered. It was man, it was us that ripped out the heart and made it into only a set of rules to follow. But the law is not the enemy. The law showed us a perfect and holy God and reminded us of one thing, that we weren't. Now that sounds offensive, and it is, but it comes with great news. It's better for us to know the truth. We have a holy God who we are undeserving of a relationship with. And the law showed us that. And it makes us look in the mirror and it makes us see our sin. But it also comes with a great promise. One instituted long, long before. This is a good thing. It reminded people and it reminds us that we could not do for ourselves what God has promised to do for us. The law shows us our great need for something more, for someone more. So whereas people once lived under a guardian and kept to the rules of the law, it was all in anticipation of a Messiah that would come so that people would no longer be under the rules and weight of the law, but instead under the fulfilled promise of God's love through Christ. That's where things were always headed. And I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. The gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. The law cried out, hope is coming. The gospel cries out, hope is here. Paul says, he finishes up here, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Christ might be given to all those who believe. What does Paul mean here? Well, to state it very simply, God's word makes it clear that 
We're all prisoners under sin, that we deserve death, that we deserve separation from this holy God. But through Christ and Christ alone, we're freed to now live under the promise and not by works, not by anything you can bring to the table, not by anything you can do, but by faith. Hear this very clearly. There is nothing you can do to attain salvation and nothing you can do to maintain salvation outside of Jesus, a faith in Jesus, period, period. And who holds all of this together? You know, as Paul brings in Abraham here, one of my favorite stories in God's promise to Abraham actually comes after he makes the initial promise to him. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again. And he says some amazing things, but what he actually does is even more amazing. Check this out. I'm just going to read this to you. In these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, this is a great question, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very son shall be your heir. This promise that God gives to Abraham. But Abraham still has some doubts. Check this out. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then God does something incredibly interesting. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. You're like, Drew, weird story. Where are you going with this? Here's where I'm going with this. God comes and he reaffirms this promise. And in historical times, this would be the sign of a covenant being made between two parties. That they would bring animals and they would sacrifice them. And then both parties would pass through, would pass in between the sacrifice. So making this covenant. But who passes through here? Represented as a flaming pot and a flaming torch, which, if you don't know in the Old Testament, represents the glory of God. Only one passes through. It's God alone. Why is that so important that only God passes through and not Abraham? Because Abraham is not the one that's going to uphold this promise. It's only God. And God's making that abundantly clear. I am the only one that's going to make this covenant. I am the only one that's going to pass through this sacrifice because I am the only one that is going to hold all of this together. Because I don't know if you know the story of Abraham as it progresses, but he botches it time and time again. He has illegitimate children. He doubts God's promises. 
But guess what? God still upholds the promise. God still upholds the covenant. You and I, we botch it time and time again, day after day. Know this. Be encouraged by this. God is still upholding his promise with you. He still is. No matter what life has thrown at you or no matter what you have thrown at him, he is still upholding this promise. The one that goes all the way back to Abraham and stretches all the way forward to today. That's the beauty of this example here. It's not Abraham. It's not me. It's God alone. So then why, if this is true, if we would say on a cognitive level, okay, I believe this, why do we have a tendency like this church in Galatia to go back under the law? Here's, I think, why. We like to contribute and we like to control. We like to contribute. We want to bring something to the table. If I invited you over to my house for dinner and I told you to bring nothing and just show up, I know that half of you would still bring something. Because you're like, I can't show up empty-handed. I have to bring something. I have to do something. We do that with God all the time, don't we? I need to do something. Man, I botched it over here. I need, I need to do something to, to really show that I'm sorry for this. And this comes from even a well-intentioned place often, but it seeps into a dangerous place. It's not bad that we bring things to God or that we do good works, but that has to come out of being loved, not to try to earn that love. But we have this tendency. We want to contribute. We want to bring something to the table, or we like to control I do this all the time. If I mess up, if I make a mistake, especially in relationships, I would much rather you just tell me what to do to make it better. Like, give me a checklist, right? Hey, what can I say? What can I do to make this right? What can I do to make up for this, right? Because the alternative, stepping into the actual relationship, seems kind of risky, seems kind of dangerous, makes me kind of vulnerable. We like to contribute. We like to control. Why? Because we have a fear, Here's the fear. What if? What if? What if I've gone too far? What if I didn't believe enough? What if God starts to see the real me? What if I can never beat this sin? What if starts to seep in? And so we buy into this false idea and we can live into this false narrative that I can, if I can just do enough, then maybe God will love me just a little bit more. Or if I do enough, if I give a little bit more, maybe this will sort of even out things and God will truly accept me. And for some of this, this fear creates a means of protection. And we are afraid to trust. And so we stand at a relational distance because we don't want to get too close and we don't want to be too vulnerable. And for some... People we should have been able to trust let us down. This can go a long way back. People who were supposed to keep us safe didn't. People who were supposed to protect us walked away. People who promised I'm in this for the long haul decided to change their mind. And it has had a visceral effect on our ability to trust. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And God knows that. And for all of us, we live in a world where promises are broken and people do walk away. And so what if creeps in? But here's the deal. This fear of what if 
is actually pointing to a deeper fear. Really the source, I believe, of all of this. And here it is. It's the deeper-seated fear of being abandoned and rejected. I love this passage. (laughs) And I love this next section here because it offers such good news. And I just hope you hear this today, no matter who you are. I really hope you hear it. This is why we bathe in the gospel. That's the way I look at it. Every Sunday when you come here, you're going to get bathed in the gospel. You're like, man, we talk about the gospel a lot. Can we change the chapter? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're a, we're, we're a one-trick pony. Like, this is it. It's the gospel, and it's grace, and it's just spinning on repeat. You're like, why in the world? Because that's the only thing through Jesus that has the power to change anything. Otherwise, what's the best I give you like five steps to a better life and then you white knuckle it this week and you botch it and you feel even worse about life. So instead of doing that up and imprisoning ourselves back underneath the law, back underneath rules, back under trying to be enough, do enough, give enough, have enough, what if we just release that and we actually buy into and believe that there is the power of the gospel by grace through Jesus? Because that is, time and time again, the only thing that changes anything and changes everything. And I believe this in the deepest place in my heart. And so here's the good news. In our fear of what if, and in our fear of potentially being rejected and abandoned, which some of you have actually experienced, here's the good news. Jesus was already rejected and abandoned so that you would never be. And nothing makes this more clear than Isaiah 53. And I don't think there's many things more beautifully written than the way that Peterson writes it in the message. And so let me just read it to you. You can even close your eyes if you want, but let it sink into the deepest part of your heart to know that this is how God sees you and what he has done for you through Jesus so that you would never have to wonder. He, Jesus, was looked down on and he was passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Think about your pains. Think about your doubts. Think about your fears. It was our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. It was our sins. Now hear this. Hear the good news. Let it sink in. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. He took all of the losses. He took all the pain. He takes all of the unresolved wounds, which you still carry, and the scar that comes over it. He took all the brokenness that our world could throw at him to make us whole. It's through his bruises that we get healed. Therefore, God says, I will reward him extravagantly, the best of everything and the highest honors. Hear this. Because he looked death in the face and he didn't flinch. 
because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of the many, and he took up the cause of all the black sheep. And that's every single one of us. I get it. We can get in our heads and we can want to try to bring things to the table and we can want to try to perform for the relationship and, and all of this gets jumbled up. But I want you to hear this big idea. I want you to hear it so deeply that the most sure thing in this world is the love of God for his children, secured by God in Christ. Out of everything that's not a sure thing, put your money on this. And he has proven it through Jesus and he does so time and time again. His love is a sure thing that stretches all the way back to the promise God made Abraham. And it even goes back a step further. That as soon as we took our first misstep in Genesis 3, God is there like a great father to pick up his child who falls and skins their knee. And he's doing it day after day in your life. His promise is just that good. Silas doesn't always listen. I have a five-year-old named Silas. And we've started getting into a little bit of some battles. He doesn't love to listen all the time. And he knows that we have certain rules in our house, just rules about how we treat one another, what we say to one another, but that always doesn't play out the right way. And, and sometimes he has to take a break. What I started noticing a couple months ago is that on occasion, Silas, after that break, he will come up to me or he'll come up to Laura and he'll say these words, so genuine. Mommy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. And what he's actually doing by saying those words is he's assuring us, he's assuring me that the relationship is good. The one who actually committed the offense knows at a deep level that nothing has changed in this relationship. And he wants to remind me of that. And he wants to remind his mom of that. And he is absolutely right in this childlike faith that nothing has changed in that relationship. I don't always love what he does, but I love who he is. And as soon as he became my son, there was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could say. It does not matter how far he could run. I will never turn my back on him because that love is binding. And that is exactly God's heart for you. He has made a promise, he has fulfilled it, and he's saying, live in it by faith. You don't have to work for my love. You don't have to work for it. Ending, I saw this on Instagram the other day, it was just this question that really hit my mind. It said, what would you do if success was guaranteed? And I immediately thought of this, and I thought of this question, how would we live if we knew our place in God's family was secure? Think about that freedom, the freedom and the hope. Because in Christ, by faith, it absolutely is, and nothing and no one is going to change that. And Paul wants this church to know that so deeply. I want you to know this so deeply, that the most sure thing in our world is the love of God for his children, secured by God and in Christ. Know that. Carry it with you. Share it. Put it on your doorpost. Remind yourself of it day in and day out. On the good days, the bad days, and everything in between, nothing's more sure than this.